My name is Rob Chomiak. I'm one of the lay elders here. And it's my privilege and honor to bring you the word of God. Thank you to the, to the music team for just stoking the hearts, stoking our hearts and our affections for Christ as we come to this place. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18 and going through verses 1 to 6. Chapter 18 is one of the great sermons or teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, found in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew records other major teachings. Most commentators have them broken up generally about the same. Matthew 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 10 is the teaching on discipleship. Chapter 13, teaching on the kingdom through parables. And chapter 24 to 25, the Olivet Discourse. But in chapter 18, we have what some refer to as teaching on the community principles. Or another way to say that is how to live together as disciples. How do we live together as the body of Christ? Chapter 18 runs really nicely as a whole unit. Where you decide to break it up is kind of arbitrary. It begins with a question. Jesus answers that question. And then just over about halfway through, Peter asks another question and Jesus answers it. But the chapter flows as one complete connected thought. And if you just scan the chapter, you'll see that it's packed with incredible instruction to the church and to the individual who makes up the church. Instructions, when heeded, that will create personal holiness and unity within the body of Christ. When the individuals are made holy, the body is made holy. Jesus discusses entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He discusses humility in the kingdom of heaven, especially in light of self-centeredness and selfish motives. He discusses what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven through that humility, receiving others as believers, protecting each other from stumbling. And this is what we'll see this morning. But if you keep going, you're going to see some other great things. Personal holiness and the drastic measures needed to fight off sin and temptation. Care for members of the church when they stray and wander. How to deal with sin in our midst individually and corporately. How members of the church should seek forgiveness from each other when they have sinned or when they have been sinned against. And the basis of forgiveness as modeled by God by forgiving so much, which allows us to forgive so little. And since our text this afternoon is verses one to six, the question might be asked, well, Rob, have you detected that grace life is suffering from selfishness or division, a lack of humility? Is this causing division among our people and that you're so concerned that you chose this text for this moment? And I would say no. I wouldn't say that we are in a specific season of this and that I chose this passage in light of that. By God's grace, I believe that we are made up of people who love the Lord and thereby love each other. They are unified, not 
perfectly, of course, but they are reaping what has been sown by godly men who planted this church and still tend to her today. Weekends ago, I was reminded about this. I was at the funeral for the founding pastor for Grace Life. And it was interesting to see, to be around other godly men over the years who had been a part of Grace Life's ministry. They were attending this funeral. These are the men who have served alongside the founding pastor. Some are still here and others have come and gone, serving in other ministries, other places. But Grace Life Church has a history of men who love the Lord, who faithfully served him by pastoring, by teaching, by counseling, praying for and with the sheep, exhorting, encouraging, warning, loving, and tending to his church through the proclamation of the word and the gospel. And by the grace of God, this has caused her to mature over the years into the image of Christ. As the word has been faithfully taught, as the gospel has faithfully gone forward from this pulpit, day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. And this has also brought her through many trials. You see, as the individuals are called to holiness, as they grow in the image of Christ, so does the body, so does her unity. And the body matures as a whole, and it begins to look more like Christ. She will take on the character, the quality of Christ, so that she will lay down her life for others. Jesus modeled this in the gospel. He is the ultimate model of laying his life down for others, especially those who don't deserve his mercy and grace. Through his shed blood on the cross, he has made atonement for our sin, that we as sinners can come to God freely now because that payment has been made on the cross. And when we repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in Christ, that work gets applied to us. That is the ultimate example of laying one's life down. Jesus modeled this. And we are seeing this attitude in this body. So no, when asked about this text for this moment, I don't believe she needs this as this specific message at this specific time. What I do believe is that grace life will always need this message. There is never a time where we won't need this message. There is never a time where we won't need these verses. There is never going to be a time where we can sit back and say, we've checked off Matthew 18 verses 1 to 6, or Matthew 18 is a chapter. We never arrive this side of heaven. We never arrive this side of Christ's return. We have to be constantly dying to ourselves, humbling ourselves, looking at us in light of God's word and what it says about us and in light of God and who he is and who we are. Serving others is more important and serving the body. No church arrives. No church will be perfected in this area of being so humble that we can take a break on this. And that's because it doesn't come natural to us. It doesn't come natural to us. We have to put off in our bodies, the desire to be great, to be above other people. This requires constant work. And you may say, well, Rob, how can this be? If she has such great men who have planted her and have shepherded her, and she has withstood incredible trials due to her unity and love, how is it that she could just slide right back into danger? How is it she could slide right back into division, 
selfishness and being focused on self and not Christ. There's many reasons this can happen. Satan tempting us to despair, roaming around like a lion waiting to devour us, trying to sow in seeds of division, personally attacking us, making us feel anxious, desperate. Not only that, but when that takes place, it affects the body as a whole. We also have, too, the temptation of our own flesh, the temptation to feel like we have arrived, that we have everything we need inside of ourselves. And what happens when you think that? Well, you let your guard down. You take your foot off the gas of your sanctification in your life, and you start feeling pretty good about yourself. And what happens? Well, your eyes start drifting from Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless sacrifice, the perfect high priest. Your eyes drift from him, and where do they go? Well, they just drift to yourself. That's the natural progression. When you take your eyes off Christ, they go to yourself. And you start feeling entitled. You start feeling like you deserve things. And this starts to impact your walk. And then when you have desires and they go unmet or someone else seems like they're going to get what you feel is yours, this leads to war in your members, to bitterness, to envy and strife. First individually. And then if that goes on long enough, corporately, we can find ourselves not looking like the church we are called to look like. This is the same thing that Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to not be what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Also, too, the other reason, which is bound up in our text, is that if you can be taught by Christ directly, if you can be one of his disciples, if you can live with him daily for years, eat with him, pray with him, have him pray for you, have him teaching you, watching him model humility, you can have that day after day as the disciples did, but yet still fall prey to having ego trips, to having division, to having jealousy, to having strife. And so if that can take place while you are being discipled by the master discipler, Jesus Christ, that means it can take place here. We will always need this chapter. We will always need these verses We need them first individually, and then we need them corporately. Let's read our text this morning. Let's read our text this afternoon. Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you're taking notes this afternoon, we're going to see three points. We're going to see the request of greatness in verse one, the request of greatness. The second point is the requirement of greatness. That's verses two to four, the requirement of greatness. And then thirdly, the responsibility of greatness, verses five and six, the responsibility of greatness. But let's start with the request of greatness. There is a question at hand that the disciples want to ask Jesus. So picking it up back in verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? At that time, this could be rendered in that hour or at that moment. Well, what moment, what hour are they referring, is Matthew referring to? Well, these words tell us that there is a definite connection to what came before in the previous chapter. Back in chapter 17, his disciples are traveling to Capernaum. And when they arrive, they go to their lodging, which is possibly Jesus's own residence. Matthew 4, 12 to 13 tells us, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. But Matthew 8, 20 tells us something different. It has Jesus talking to a scribe and he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's actually more likely that this house is Peter's house. This seemed to be their main lodging when they were in Capernaum in in this area. And if you go through the gospels, you'll actually see lots of references to the house. When they were in the house, they left the house. And most commentators believe this is Peter's house. The other clue we get to that is in chapter 17, Picking it up in verse 24, we have the temple tax collectors, the men that go around and collect the temple tax. And they asked Peter about Jesus paying it. This implies that he was the owner of the house. At that time, when they went around and collected taxes, they would go to the man of the house or the owner. Matthew 17, 24, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said yes. Either way, we now find them in their Capernaum base camp. And Jesus here instructs the disciples on this temple tax situation. And it's right after this, it's right after this teaching that we now, def- that we now find the disciples asking, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, what prompted this question? What was it about the temple tax teaching that prompted this question? That seems to come after that. Well, Jesus talked about rulers not taxing their sons. And this is true. Rulers don't typically draw tax from their own family or inner circle. They draw it from their subjects, who Jesus notes as strangers in these verses, outside of the family circle. So if we finish in verse 25 to 26, we read... And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, being Peter, first, saying, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Now follow Jesus's flow of his argument here. Who is the ruler of the temple of God? Well, it's God. God's the ruler of the temple. And if his son is exempt, that means Jesus is exempt from this tax. Jesus has just declared he doesn't need to pay it. He will pay it to not offend the tax collectors. But the implication is that he is God's son and he is exempt from paying it. Now, since Jesus's disciples are his inner circle, did this trigger something in their minds about who they are and what role they play in the kingdom? Jesus has been teaching about this coming kingdom for many verses and many times in Matthew's gospel. He's been telling them about this coming kingdom that's going to be set up. Are they wondering now after this teaching how they can best serve Jesus as he is the king in this coming kingdom? How they can serve this king? That's one possibility. But when we read the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, we gain some more needed information. Turning your Bibles to Mark 9, 33 to 34. Mark 9, 33 and 34. This is Mark's parallel account. They came to to Capernaum. This is the disciples. And when he was in the house, he, being Jesus, began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Now just flip over to Luke's gospel, to Luke chapter 9, verses 46 and 47, to read the parallel account there. Luke 9, 46 and 47. We get more clarity about where this question comes from. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. So when we put this together, we can now figure out where this question actually came from. We have the disciples arguing on the way to Capernaum. They're arguing with each other about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? This is an argument. When they arrive, Jesus asks them, what were you arguing about? Knowing their hearts. This is Luke's account. And then asks them about it. And then they go silent because they're ashamed. Mark's account. And most likely this is where the teaching on the tax comes. And then Peter leaves to go get the two coins from the fish. Now at that point... Jesus had told the other disciples, or they had heard this teaching to Peter about Jesus paying his own and Peter's, and Peter leaves. So it's most likely that 
fearing that Peter is now going to be the most prominent in the kingdom, they now ask in Matthew's, who then is the greatest? At some point, Peter will come back to hear this answer because he's going to show up again later in chapter 18. But this actually gives us the heart motive behind their question, what they really wanted to know. Who is going to be the greatest disciple out of us in your kingdom? If we are part of your inner circle, Jesus, what's in it for us? This is also why they were ashamed when Jesus asked them about it in Mark's account. Who will be first? It's not a desire to serve, but a desire to be served that drives this question. They want the others to serve them. And once they start thinking about themselves, anyone else who seems to have prominence is now a threat, not an ally in this inner circle. And if you look at the way that Matthew has presented the prominence of Peter, it's pretty staggering. And it makes perfect sense why they would ask this question. Matthew's been mentioning Peter far more often than any other of the disciples, over a dozen times by name. Matthew singles Peter out as the first in the list of disciples in Matthew 10 too. Peter was the one who walked on water, Matthew 14, 29. Peter's declaration that Christ was the Lord in Matthew 16, 16. And then Jesus speaking about Peter's special role in founding his ecclesia, his church, in Matthew 16, 18 to 19. Peter was brought along to the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1. The tax collectors came to Peter, assuming he knows the answer to their question, and Jesus includes Peter in not only the solution to the tax question, but paying for him as well as himself. So they're wondering, who's the greatest? But this preoccupation with prominence doesn't just go away for any of them, including Peter. In Matthew 19, 27, after the rich young ruler is talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, sell everything and follow me, and he doesn't, we then have Peter saying, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And then notice this, what then will there be for us? We gave up everything for you, Jesus. He couldn't give up anything, but we gave up everything. What's going to be in it for us? Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28, has the mother of James and John seeking prominence for her sons, which mothers tend to do. But that's probably not without the prodding of James and John. And we notice, too, that jealousy and strife was still there among the other 10 because it says they were indignant at that. They were indignant at James and John. This shows that the disciples can be walking with Jesus Christ, living with him, hearing him teach day after day, even having him tell them, I'm going to be given over to death. I will be given over to the scribes and Pharisees to be killed, and I'll be raised on the third day. They can hear that message. They heard that back in 16. In verse 21, When he told them he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then a short time later in chapter 17, picking it up in verse 22, it says, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And notice this, and the disciples and they 
were deeply grieved. They were even grieved and yet still full of jealousy, envy, and strife while Jesus is modeling humility and service to them. Beloved, if this can happen in the best of all settings, it can certainly happen here. That we can allow ourselves first individually to get caught up with thinking about what's in it for me. What am I getting out of this? Which will then lead to that attitude creeping in corporately. When there is a little leaven, it will affect the whole loaf. If we have an unhealthy preoccupation with self, we can lose sight of, of who we have been called to serve. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We can even be envious of others. And when, when we do not obtain recognition or what we want, it causes war in our members. It causes us to commit murder. The half-brother of Jesus, James, in his epistle, captures this so well. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because, notice this, you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Beloved, when we have our focus on ourselves and we feel like we deserve things, that we deserve what we want, and then we don't get it, this causes war in us. Unmet expectations causes war in our members. That's anger. When we lust and then don't get it, we commit murder. When we are envious and cannot have, we fight and quarrel. Jesus is going to answer their question about greatness. And the answer goes against everything the world has to offer about greatness. All their preconceived notions of greatness are about to get demolished. If you want to rise up, then you need to lower yourself down. The greatest in this kingdom won't be served. They will be the ones serving. If you want to be seen as significant in the kingdom, you need to be insignificant. And nobody in their world represents insignificance more than a child. Which brings us to the requirement of greatness. The requirement of greatness. Verses 2 and 4. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And said, truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus calls a child to himself and sets the child before them. Now this word child can refer to a child of any age from infancy to puberty. But notice that the child is old enough to respond to Jesus when he calls him. It's not strange for Jesus to have children around him. They were often among the 12 and the other disciples as a group. Matthew 14, 21 and 15, 38 recount 
the children being at the feeding of the 5,000. And again, when 4,000 were fed. In Matthew 19, 13, people are bringing children to Jesus so he could lay hands on them and pray, much to the chagrin of the disciples. If they are at Peter's house, this could even be Peter's son. The child knew Jesus enough that when he called, he wasn't afraid to stand by him, Luke 9, 47. Mark 9, 36 tells us, and the child didn't even, be, didn't even mind being picked up by Jesus and held in his arms. But the identity of the child does not matter for a second. What matters is the illustration of what the child represents. Sometimes Jesus teaches in parables, but he also uses real-life illustrations or visual aids to help his hearers understand better. We see this in John 13, 2 to 15, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. That is a beautiful picture, a beautiful visual illustration of serving others, loving others more than you love yourself, of the greater serving the lesser. Using a child is a great illustration because in Jesus' day, a child had little to no status among the community. They were insignificant. They had no rights. To bring a small child in front of these men who are arguing about greatness, Jesus is giving them an important visual illustration here. Picking up in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It appears that Jesus is not about to answer their question just yet. That's going to happen in verse 4. Notice, truly I say to you, or I tell you the truth. Back in 5, 18, Matthew has the same thing recorded, for I tell you truly. Here, Jesus is using the same language about getting into the kingdom. Jesus is drawing attention to how important his next statement is. And this is critically important. Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Before you argue about being great in the kingdom of heaven, you must ensure that you actually have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Don't worry about greatness. Worry about entrance. What good is it if you are great outside of the kingdom? There's no point in discussing greatness in the kingdom with people who aren't going to make it if they keep going down their path of selfishness. Jesus knows this. This is why he tells them that they need to change. They need to be converted. The Greek word for converted is strepho. And in all the other uses in Matthew's gospel, it means turn. It means to turn to turn away, to turn to something else, to turn from what you are or what you were. But here it's translated converted, which is the better sense. Because it does, again, it does you no good to just turn from something and not land somewhere else. Well, what do they need to turn from? And how is this related to being converted? Well, they need to turn from their selfish motives. Jesus knows their hearts. We saw that in Luke's account in verse 47. Knowing their hearts isn't a problem for Jesus. 
John 2, 24 to 25 says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is a turning from their thoughts of personal status. This is a turning from their selfishness to turn away from personal gain, to turn away from personal gain at others' expense, turn away from the desire to be greater than others, to leave this thinking behind. And it's not as simple as just turning and tacking on Christ to that turning. John MacArthur captures it well when he says, quote, you can't keep going the same way and just add Jesus. Self-seeking, proud, egotistical men and women tack on Jesus and they find themselves, like in Matthew 7, hearing, away from me, I never knew you. People that just try to tack Jesus onto their lives without a turning, without a changing, it will be a sad reality when they meet the Lord. This turning is used in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. And notice this, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you, the Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned completely from, in a way, their idol worship. Acts 3.26, For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Jesus wants them to turn from their wicked ways, to turn. This is the same thing that Paul describes in Ephesians 4.22-24. to Just turn there with me, quickly. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. That, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self to turn, to lay it aside, to change And why? Why do we have to turn from the old self? Why is it important that we have to change and turn? Aren't I fine the way I am? Let's keep reading. Well, the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. This is why we need to turn. This is why we need to turn, because we are sinful people. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We can't stay there and just expect to add Christ to our lives. And there's something else in the text as well that's not that easy to pick up on, but it's in the Greek construction, is that this turning can't be done by man. This turning away is granted to us. It can't be done under our own power. It must be done by someone or something outside of ourselves. Well, why? Because again, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We can't turn because we don't have the ability to turn. You have all the free will you want. It just happens to be bound by sin. 
And so it requires somebody outside of ourselves. These disciples need somebody outside of them to turn them away from their sinful, selfish desires. Matthew 19.26 helps explain this right after, again, the rich young ruler with Peter when he says, how can anyone be saved then? Jesus says, with people, this is impossible, referring to salvation. But with God, all things are possible. So if God has to be the one to turn us from our sinful selves, to turn the disciples What is he turning us to? Well, unless you are converted and become like children. So what is it about children that God would have us emulate? Is it their innocence? Is it their purity? Is it because they are simplistic and we need to be changed to a childlike mind, their type of thinking? Children are a wonderful creation of God. We know this from the psalmist in Psalmist 139, and they are a blessing. Again, the psalmist in 127 and 128. But the psalmist also knows of their sinfulness from conception. Psalm 51.5. And any parent knows that this is true. Go spend time in the nursery when the sermon runs long. I call that a sanctification party for the workers. It's not that that we need to emulate in children. It's the humility of a child that is what we need. It's the humility of the child is why Jesus is bringing one into their midst. Because the child has to rely on someone else for everything. There is nothing in them that can meet their own needs. The child cannot meet its own needs. It requires an outside force to act upon it for love, for food, for shelter, for sustenance, for everything. And especially in the disciples' time, this is a graphic visual because these are people who can't do anything for themselves. These kids didn't even have cell phones. They have no status. They can't get anything on their own. And they are totally helpless in their situation. To be converted and become like children is a radical change or turning from ourselves as we are humbled by God, shown our sinful state, shown that we have no status, showing that we are lost in our sins and trespasses, shown that we can do nothing to help ourselves. This is the humbleness that he's showing them. You can't do anything. It's to cry out with Isaiah. Woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Or the tax collector who wasn't even able to lift his eyes to God who was beating his breast. God be merciful to me, the sinner. When God turns us, humbles us, and brings us to the end of ourselves, this is the humbling. And then when you realize you can't do anything, when you realize you can't meet your own needs regarding your sin, when you realize that you can't do anything to appease God's righteous law, 
This is where you finally cry out in repentance and faith. Like a child desperate to its parents for help. God answers. He is faithful to answer. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. The ones who mourn are the ones who recognize their brokenness and their sinful state, and they recognize there's nothing they can do. They mourn over themselves. And God comforts them. He comforts them. He changes them. He converts them. He gives them everything they need in Christ. He withholds nothing from them. God is a loving father, a long-suffering, loving father who loves his children and is eager and zealous to give them exactly what they need. And this is conversion. This is them getting a brand new start, a new foundation, as it were, going back. This is also why it's referred to as the new birth. Flip over in John to chapter 3. There is a huge allusion here to the new birth. I'm just going to read from, just picking up in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And this work later is described as the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 8 when it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. To be converted like children is the new birth, is to come to the place where you've been humbled like a child and you recognize that there is nothing in you that you can do to please God, to reconcile yourself to God. It is all an external work. And when it's done by God and God brings the humble, broken, contrite sinner into the kingdom, by them being born of water and spirit, he gives them a new heart with new desires. He changes them radically. This is what they're turning to, a new heart, a love for the Lord. Back in Matthew 18, verse four, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Finally, the disciples get the answer They were looking for. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The verb tapino, which is used here for humbles, regularly denotes status or talks about status. And hypso is used in direct opposition of that to lift up. 
So we get the sense here that this humbles himself is closer to humiliates himself. Whoever then humbles or humiliates or or lays prostrate as this child, whoever does that in the kingdom of heaven is the greatest. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be those who understand the best about their total need of God and his mercy and grace who bring themselves low before the throne. The greatest will be those striving to be humble, striving to lift up others, not themselves, not by their power. They can't do it. It's Christ's power that allows them to do it. This is also why we see Jesus saying later on in Matthew 20, the first will be last and the last will be first. Status is of no concern for the regenerated heart because he didn't earn anything. Salvation is a gift from God. Status is a desire that holds no place there now. They have a new heart with new desires. And this brings us to our final point, the responsibility of greatness. The responsibility of greatness. When you have been converted like this child and given a new heart, there are now a responsibility to do in the community of God. Verse five, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. These two verses are like a couplet. They go together. They're connected by the word stumbling or stumble. It's what connects them. So you have people receiving one of these little ones and you have people that cause them to stumble. So what does it mean to receive one such child? Well, this is a love for God's people and it's bound up in conversion. And if you think that we're just talking about children here, we're not. The word such child, one such child, begins to broaden the category. This is believers. Now, children are obviously, of course, bound up in that. But this language is now broadening. And we're going to see Jesus referring later on in Matthew 18 to little ones, to little ones, meaning believers as well. Whoever receives one such child or one such believer in my name receives me. So what does this mean? How is it that we receive Jesus when we receive believers? Well, Matthew 10, 40 to 42. Let's quickly read that. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me, referring to the Father. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. But notice this. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. When you welcome any of those who belong to Jesus Christ, 
no matter how insignificant they may appear to be in the world, we are welcoming Jesus himself because you cannot separate the Lord from his people. Once the Lord has bought them, they are his forever. He will lose none. They are united. This is why when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus could say to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Referring to himself. Well, Paul didn't persecute Christ. He persecuted believers. But Jesus clearly says, you are persecuting me when you persecute my little ones. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus modeled love for us so that we can now go and love our brothers and sisters. Jesus laid his life down for them. And that is the expectation for us. Matthew will develop this further in chapter 18, but the love for Christ's people is inseparable from our love to him. You cannot say, I love Christ, but I kind of get annoyed at the church. You can't say, I've got Jesus, but I don't like believers. The New Testament scripture doesn't know that at all. When you receive a believer in Christ, it is as if you are receiving Christ himself. And we need this picture in our minds every time we need to work through forgiveness, hospitality, discipleship, encouraging, exhorting, and even rebuking among the body. Think about it this way. How eager would you be to have Christ over for Sunday dinner tonight? How eager would you be to pray with Christ? How eager would you be to speak to him every day? But whatever you do to the least of his people, you do to him. So we have to remember that. How are we treating the body of Christ? How are we treating the body of Christ? Because what you're doing there is how you treat Christ himself. And then in closing, finishing in verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If receiving Jesus's little ones in hospitality, if receiving believers hospitably is tantamount to receiving Jesus, then beloved, note this, causing them to sin is tantamount to rejecting Jesus. To cause someone to stumble here is to entrap or cause a person to trip and fall. It is to entice corrupt the person morally, to render that liable to eternal punishment. Placing enticements in their path to do wrong, beguiling allurements. It appears to bring to mind fatal damage done to the disciples' relationship with God. This is the type of stumbling that the author has in mind. They are caused to slip so as to be in danger of falling out of the race altogether. Now, Jesus will later talk about the seriousness of personal sin and the drastic measures needed to deal with it, to remove it. 
Later on in Matthew in 18, he talks about that if you will not deal with your own personal sin, you risk, 18 verse 8, to be cast into the eternal fire. Now, we don't have a punishment listed here in verse 6 for causing somebody to stumble. But the implication is this. If Jesus' little ones are so important to him, and they are, then to cause spiritual damage to even one of them is more than a capital offense. If you cause yourself to sin, that's one thing. You risk going into the fiery hell. But if you cause another one of these little ones to stumble, there is a eschatological judgment that is coming that is incredibly far more severe. It would have been better had you just died a horrible and gruesome death. And believe me, being thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck was a terrible way to go. The Jews were fishermen, but they weren't seafaring people. The idea here of drowning at sea is a terrifying expectation. And the expectation is only increased when a large millstone is added to the equation. And this ensures that it is done. It's one thing to be drowning in the ocean, but it's another thing to have a massive millstone, the kind that the donkeys used in return. It was the top of the millstone, and it had a hole in it. To have that, have a rope ran through it and tied around your neck and pushed into the water. Not only are you drowning, but you are being sucked down to the bottom of the darkest parts of the sea as you are going down, as you are dying. That is a terrible way to go. And that's the picture Jesus paints. There is no chance of survival. Revelation 18.21 uses this same picture the heavy millstone thrown into the sea to symbolize the total destruction of Babylon. It would appear that it would have been better to have not been born at all or to die a gruesome death than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is the same pronouncement that falls on Judas. Matthew 26 24. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. We have to protect our own personal holiness, we have to work at it, we have to work at our sanctification reading the word, meditating on the word, so that when we come together as a body, we do not risk causing somebody else to stumble. We have to mature ourselves in Christ, look like Christ, serve each other sacrificially, humbly, so that we will lift each other up in love, not tear each other down. But beloved, even though this sin may take place, Maybe it's taking place in your life. We have a precious Savior that has paid for that sin. 
Just think about the disciples. Jesus knew this was in their heart. He knew they wanted greatness. He knew before he even called them that they were going to be arguing about greatness in light of him going to the cross. They argue about it all the way to the cross, the night before the cross. But he still called them. He still chose them and he still paid for them. And beloved, may it be that when you sin, you flee to Christ because he has paid for your sin. If you know him, if you've repented and he is your savior and you are his slave, may it be that you flee to him for forgiveness. Even if you were to cause one of these little ones to sin, there is still forgiveness at the cross. Grace Life Church needs these texts. Grace Life Church needs chapter 18. We all do. I do. You do. This is a we moment. You know when you're like reading the epistles and then the author's telling you, brethren, do this. Beloved, do this, do that. And then there's these sweet moments where the author says, we need to do this. Beloved, this is a we moment. I am not separate from you. We all need this so that we stay unified together as one body until Christ returns or calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an incredible passage, an incredible passage that we are called to meditate on, to reflect on, Father, that we would become like children, that we would humble ourselves before you in light of who you are, your holy, perfect character, and in light of what your word says about us, Father. Help us to be converted. Help us to come to the cross to experience the mercy of having our sins removed, having our eternal punishment removed, and to experience the grace, the freeness of salvation brought to us so that we can then, with new hearts, be made more into Christ's image day by day and thereby come together as a body and serve each other in a race to lift others up before we lift ourselves up, Father. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.